My name is Augustine Passon, and you are listening to Magnolia Tree's podcast all about ethical leadership. Together with Sabina Gromer, the founder of Magnolia Tree, we leverage our network of inspiring individuals from all walks of life to learn from their experiences about leadership. Our goal is to spark thinking on ethics and leadership one podcast episode at a time. I invite you to join me on my journey of personal growth, and I look forward to learning more about leadership alongside you. There we go. Okay, so uh, today I'm joined by my guest, uh, Eileen Bodding. Uh, Eileen has been a really good friend of mine and a mentor throughout my time in university, and I'm really excited that I could get her to come on the podcast because we've we've had a little bit of scheduling issues, <laughs> but we finally got it figured out. So um, without further ado, Eileen, if you want to introduce yourself, if you want to talk about a little bit about your background, so let people know. Yes. Uh, well, my name is Eileen Hunt Bodding. I'm a professor of political science at Notre Dame. I've been teaching here since 2001. And uh, for a few years, I was the faculty director of the Hesburgh Visco Scholars Program, uh, in which Augustine is an important member. And as part of that uh, work as the mentor for the Hesburgh East Coast Scholars, I taught a course called Ethical Leadership, and I learned a lot about the study of leadership during that time. I taught it for two years, and Augustine was one of many students who took the class, and uh, and so I'm here today just to chat about, about uh, the idea of ethical leadership with Augustine. Great. I'm so excited to do so. So uh, without further ado, would you like to pick a question of one to 20 and I'll, I'll give you the relevant relevant question. Oh, okay. Pick a yeah. number. Any okay. number, any number. Oh, one wow. To 20. Okay. Exciting. How random. Yeah. Uh, number 10. Number 10. Number 10 is um, growing up, what did you want to become and how did that turn out and why? <laughs> Let's see. Growing up when I was very young, say, four to five years old, I wanted to be a fire girl. And then I wanted to be a mommy. And then I wanted to be a fire girl and a mommy. Uh, and as I grew up further, I discovered I loved art and I wanted to become an artist, but my dad said, you'll starve. So I changed gears and I eventually became a political theorist. And uh, now I realize that a lot of my interests as a child are still animating my work. Uh, like a fire girl, I'm quite interested in the question of, of what it means to be uh, good to other people, what it means to make sacrifices to help others, um, what are obligations to other humans, to other life forms, to the planet itself, to the environment. These are the driving questions of my work, especially on Mary Shelley in her great novel, Frankenstein, which dramatizes this very question. When, when Victor Frankenstein makes his creature, he chooses to abandon the creature rather than care for him. And for that reason, I think the novel is an extended thought experiment on the question of what obligations we bear towards um, the creatures and creations we make. Uh, and uh, so in many ways, my work, uh, even though I did not become a fire girl or, or, uh, or, or an artist, uh, technically speaking, uh, is still very much oriented towards these questions about um, human responsibilities for other creatures 
Uh, and uh, I am a mother though, uh, as you know, uh, my son is now uh, in kindergarten. Uh, so just that same age when I began to think about my future and what my, what my career might be. Uh, and interestingly, recently he did say that he wanted to be a fireman. Uh, yeah, keeping the dream alive. <laughs> but I, I still deeply admire people who um, are firemen or women because they they are they seem to me uh, modern day heroes. Uh, and I think maybe that's true, especially for my generation. Um, since yeah, I was about 29 years old when 9/11 happened. And you know, I think for people who who experience 9-11 um, as young adults or as children, um, I think we, you know, realize that, you know, firemen and women are among the, the true heroes we have in our societies. And, and, and maybe that's, the, for me, the definition of a true leader. It's someone who's willing to step up to the plate and, and be a hero, be, um, be self-sacrificial if necessary to do what's right for everyone. Right. And I think you have a, a really interesting perspective on leadership in general because you have such a background in kind of looking at the ethics and looking at um, what does it mean to be good. And how do you like? I, I know you probably took some time to plan out your ethical leadership course. How did that kind of your background with you know ethics and, and that sort of meaning play into when you were trying to think about what it means to be a leader? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think originally when I um, began to teach that course, I, I probably approached it more philosophically than I ultimately taught the material. Uh, and I, I remember reading some books about ethical leadership and I actually was surprised how few books there were <laughs> to read uh, on that very topic. Lots of books on leadership yeah. uh, and often political leadership, economic business leadership, but to find books that were explicitly about ethical leadership uh, was, was tough. I did find one by a theologian at Boston University by that title, and and uh, I uh, enjoyed his work very much. It was rooted in the civil rights movement, um, the thought of Martin Luther King in particular, and and that's the, the basic ethical standpoint I ended up adopting in the course, which of course fits Notre Dame's social justice mission yeah. um, in the legacy of Father Hesburgh, who was a friend of Martin Luther King, and supported the civil rights movement. And uh, through his own leadership, uh, so so that was that. I, I decided to take more of a practical ethical standpoint, right. on the course, um, to think about what does it mean to be ethical in the real world, and then what does it mean to step up to the plate and be a leader, take responsibility um, for yourself and others, and your impact on the environment in the real world. And so the course was, in the end. Um, more practically oriented than perhaps I originally thought it would be. Oh. Uh, but I enjoyed that part of it. And I think that the students did too. Although given how uh, intellectual Notre Dame students tend to be, um, I think even for them, it was hard to get into the mindset where we're going to do this more experiential kind of learning where we're not going to be just reading classics of philosophy and thinking about say what Aristotle thought about ethical leadership, right. you know, that's not going to be the point of this class. And um, the ultimate point, which I think um, students grasped certainly by the end of the year 
uh, the end of the year long course was that we, it was meant to inspire them to figure out ways that they could actually go out in the community um, or on campus or um, in their summers back home and figure out ways that they could make a positive impact in their communities um, uh, in a way that that was uh, responsible and uh, you know not domineering, um, not selfish, um, not self-aggrandizing, but rather um, seeking the good of the whole community. No, that's a that's a difficult aspect of leadership because it's something I've struggled with too. Is you know you kind of have that desire to want to be in charge of people, but it can be hard sometimes to, to step back a little bit and, and, and make sure that everyone gets their own voice. And that's like a very important balance that you have to strike when you're approaching leadership. And I think that kind of plays into the, the question that I wanted to ask you next a little bit, which was, you know, it's very easy to fall into a trap, I think, of, of reading a lot about leadership and, and reading um, you know, the materials, trying to follow these models that, that different individuals come up with, it, it's much more difficult to take those and apply those practically in your own life. And did you see yourself taking any of the, the lessons that you took away from the course and trying to apply them in real life? What, what, was there any big takeaways? Uh, I think the, the thing I learned is, is exactly what you just articulated, the importance of being able to distinguish between the desire to be in charge you know, right. to make an impact yourself as an individual, which is, I think, a common desire, something we all have. And yeah. in, in, in some sense, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we, we all have a desire to make a mark on the world, you know, before we die. I think all human beings have that desire um, to leave something behind that's meaningful um, in their work, um, in their relationships, and so on. Uh, and, and so that's an important desire that we have to balance against this uh, responsibility we have towards the good of the whole or to the yeah. whole environment, to the whole community. Um, so we can't let that desire to make an impression, um, that desire to um, uh, take charge, um, overwhelm the other side of leadership, which is this ethical, responsible, other-oriented dimension of leadership. Yeah, I think if... there is a self are a self or self selfish dimension of leadership yeah. for sure. And I think we all have to accept that. Um, and we all have this kind of, you know, just like when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist. Well, why did I want to be an artist? Well, I wanted to express my creativity and I yeah. wanted, I wanted the world to appreciate that. Um, in, in some ways that's a selfish design, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's, that's part of it. And creativity is certainly part of leadership. On the other hand, we have to balance that with the need to respect the needs of others as yeah. part of our leadership. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's a really good point because at a certain point, you know, everyone's selfish and it's, it's, it's an inherent trait. It's not necessarily good or bad, but you have to learn outlets to, to channel that selfishness um, in, in productive ways. Uh, do you have any, I, I know I've struggled with it. Do you have any advice on like maybe some practical experience you've had with that? You, uh, interesting. Well, I mean, I think even just in the context of that class, I learned a yeah. lot. I mean, I, I, I got a lot of uh, feedback, good and bad in the class uh, from students. And, um, and I listened to the feedback even when it was hard to listen to. And I made changes to the way the course worked. Uh, and I think that, um, by the time I taught it twice, I think I developed a, a system and I, I think 
think it, I think it worked, even though I would say that if I had to critique my own leadership retrospectively, I wish there was a way I could have made the course smaller um, or maybe had sections. Um, it was a very large class, sometimes up to 100 students. And um, we, we did a lot of small group work and we did um, experiential group work in the community and on campus as well. Um, but it might've been fun, it, you know, if there were the resources to maybe have, a, you know, um, a, a lot of sections. And, yeah. you know, if I had, if I had, you know, the ability to use my leadership to um, distribute those resources, I, I, I would have had a fleet of, say, really dynamic graduate assistants um, teaching very small sections of the course. So maybe there would be like a once a week lecture where everybody got together, um, but then we'd, we, we'd have, um, or maybe not even once a week, maybe once every two weeks. And then, then the other, other meetings would be meetings um, in small groups where everyone got to know each other really well. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that teaching is a kind of leadership. And, and one thing that I've learned as a teacher over the last 20 years is that you, you have to listen to the feedback of your students. And, and it's not just at the end of the course, you know, in the formal course evaluations, um, the most important way you can respond to your students and be a good leader um, is to listen to them all the way through the course yeah. and, and pick up on, on things when they're not going as planned and making adjustments. And I think yeah. ultimately that's probably the most important element of, of leadership is um, adaptability and willingness to um, admit mm. mistakes, failures, and, and, and not, get hung, not get hung up on them. Just realize that it's part and parcel of whatever it is you're leading or doing is simply to respond, adapt, change, and make it work um, yeah. on why. Um, there's a real spontaneity, I think, to leadership that I think is something we all learn over time and it, it actually reminds me a lot of, of theater. In high school, I was in the drama club. And one thing you learn when you do theater is the importance of knowing how to ad lib. And, uh, and, and, and I think a lot, honestly, a lot of great ethical leadership, other oriented leadership that still harnesses individual creativity is about ad libbing. No, you're totally right. I think like one of the most beneficial things to me in my young adult life was taking improv classes. Uh, mm -hmm. That had such a huge impact on just my confidence to evoke and to talk and to be willing to just take conversations and flow with them, which is exactly what I'm applying right now. But you hit on another point that I kind of wanted to circle back to, which was kind of that idea of self-reflection. And that's like a real through line that I've heard during a lot of my interviews is that the importance of self-reflection, the importance of meditation. Um, and, and like you said, using the information that you're getting and opening yourself up to critique in order to better yourself. Do you have any advice kind of for someone young like me, maybe who is still less experienced on, I know you had personal experience as a teacher. How did you go about facilitating receiving feedback? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I, I do, and this is what I've learned in the classroom as a teacher, and you, you know from taking my small classes that I really love teaching smaller seminars. Right. And what, what I, the way I um, self-reflect on my own teaching, my own leadership in the classroom, is by encouraging my students to talk freely. 
Yeah. Uh, and so at the beginning of every seminar, as you know, I just let students talk. Yeah. And, and sometimes I mean, it's intimidating at first. Talk for like 20 minutes. I mean, honestly, we could we could whittle away that hour and 15 minutes pretty, pretty easily yeah. just chatting. And you know, we just chat, you know, as long as, as long as it took for students to kind of settle into an interesting conversation. So I would let the conversation evolve naturally from within the classroom and among the different personalities in the classroom. So in other words, I was able to self-reflect on the way my course should flow and develop um, best when I allowed my students to just freely exhibit their own eccentric individual personalities and, and also get to know each other as friends in the classroom in an informal way. And then there would always be a moment in the conversation where I'd see, aha, that's the connection to whatever text we're reading today. Right, that's right. the connection to whatever project we have to accomplish today. So, you know, in your future career in business, you know, you'll be running meetings and there'll be a moment where, you know, um, after having a kind of free flowing chatty conversation with a bunch of people around a table, um, you'll see the moment. You know, yeah. you, somebody will say something and you'd be like, aha, that's it. It's obvious. That's where we have to take this conversation. And, and that also brings us back to creativity. Yeah. So a lot of leadership is seeing um, those kind of creative sparks happen in, in a conversation and then running with it and not going into a meeting with the pre-planned idea of how it's going to go. Yeah. Um, if it's anything I've learned about um both leadership and teaching is that you set yourself up for failure when you just have a checklist of things that you need to accomplish in any given meeting. You, you have to respect the fact that human beings are spontaneous, free creatures, and you have to let them be themselves. You can't, you can't force them to go down your mental um, outlook. You know, that's another thing that I was thinking about just during that conversation was I remember during our, our it was actually before freshman union, you gave us a, a, an assigned reading list. And on one of those, that reading list was quiet, um, the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. And uh, I was just kind of thinking about that because you were talking about the importance of letting like these eccentric personalities come through and thriving on that. But there's also that element of there are people who aren't necessarily that free flowing, maybe not as vocal as I am, whether it be positive or negative. Um, and how do you kind of, I guess, harmonize with those emotions in the class? How do you draw out those characteristics? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And this is one that for sure is relevant to a business career, you know, um, where there, the world is far more structured than academia, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, you can't get away with quite so much spontaneity, perhaps, um, as you can uh, in the classroom. Uh, yes, for sure. You, I think this is this gets back to just respecting the diversity of people's personalities. Um, you know, we're not all introverts. We're not all extroverts. Um, and, uh, and and that's why I think conversation, um, uh, informal social interactions are really important, whether they're in person or virtual as we are now, because 
Um, it allows you to get a sense of people's personalities, um, how they work together, how they relate to one another, what annoys them, you know, what, what makes them excited, what makes them happy, um, what makes them motivated to do something. Yeah. Um, I just uh, listened to a podcast with Chomsky. It was really interesting because one thing Chomsky said is that, um, you know, there are uh, actually three things that really define human beings. The first thing is language. The second thing is thought. And the third thing is creativity. Yeah. Um, and we use language and thought to be creative. And we actually, in his view, have infinite resources for being creative as a result of our unique capacities for language and thought. Uh, and um, I thought that was so powerful. But I think that that's true of everyone, no matter your personality. We all have language capabilities. We all have the capacity for thought in varying ways. Um, doesn't matter. Um, if you are um, um, disabled or not, um, uh, if you are mentally disabled, you still have um, uh, different abilities with regard mm -hmm. to language and thought, for example, and therefore different abilities when it comes to creativity. Uh, and, um, and so, you know, I think a good leader um, will um, allow um, the uh, people he or she is working with uh, to um, get to know each other, um, express their unique um, talents and capabilities vis-a-vis -vis one another, and um, and learn to work with them, learn to uh, draw out their best qualities in a team or a group. For me, the the team aspect is important in leadership because uh, I have a, a background as a runner, and I, I ran on the teams at Bowdoin. Uh, when I was in college. And uh, so I tend to think of leadership in terms of teamwork. Right. Uh, so ultimately, they're, 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 it's about, in some sense, the submersion of the ego and the needs of the community. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so the, the leader of the team is someone who, who can kind of stand back and look at the whole group and try to take that outsider perspective on what's happening, yeah. um, that critical perspective on the whole group, including um, him or herself, and and, and, and therefore um, uh, see what's working and what isn't, um, yeah. and uh, what needs to be altered or adjusted in order to achieve um, the, the goals. No, and I, I think that's definitely the power, and like you said, in having those small groups. And, and it's obviously not always a possibility to have small groups but i feel like when you do have a smaller working unit a smaller classroom a smaller whatever you have much more opportunity to get in tune with the the smaller details the personality traits the quirks of the individuals and then because of that you're a lot more able to pursue a more harmonious teamwork whereas that's that's hard and i mean even for myself when i'm in like a huge classroom setting whether it be like a lecture hall with like 100 200 300 people it's it's hard to speak up and it, it, obviously you just don't get that same personal connection that you do in a smaller group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of what goes on in the business world nowadays is built around smaller teams from what I understand. And, right. and, you know, there's a recognition that, that people tend to work better in, in smaller groups uh, um, in part because they mimic other small social units that are important to us in life, including the family. Yeah. And, uh, and there, there's a way in which we, we just um, are used to and, and enjoy that kind of um, smaller 
more um, affectionate um, social interaction. That that familiarity and intimacy we get when we're when we're located within a small network of people. No, absolutely. I mean, I I've never I, I'm going to plug Magnolia Tree, which is the company I work for a little bit here, but it's a group of just four people, um, including me. And I've never been more comfortable or more happy oh. at any position because it's just you get that really dynamic, personal, informal relationships. And it just makes the workflow so much easier than when you have a, a really hierarchical s structure where you're just scared to approach whoever is your superior. And there's just a ton of people you, you're interacting with loosely. It's hard yeah. to, to find your space in that kind of organization. Mm -hmm. And I guess, well, that, that, that raises an interesting question, just me thinking about that now is, you know, you do work in a massive institution, um, even though you do, you are in the political science department, which is slightly more contained. Um, how do you kind of create your own space or, or, or find your own dynamic in a, in a larger organization like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, universities are massive institutions. I mean, Notre Dame is, is, is medium sized. It's, I think, in total, there's probably somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people working or studying at Notre Dame at any time. Yeah. Um, so we're not a huge university, um, but we're um, large enough. Uh, and uh, but but one thing I think happens when you work in a, a larger institution is you you actually get the chance to reinvent yourself, um, you know, periodically. Um, and uh, if you are in a very small organization that may not always be possible. And, and it may be after a few years, you, you just feel the need, I need to move on, I need to do something new, something different. Um, and um, I know, in, especially for more recent generations, it's very common to move careers, move jobs, maybe not move careers, but to move jobs within one career yeah. um, every few years. Um, whereas, you know, in academia, um, I suppose maybe my career is atypical because even in academia, it's quite common to move, move positions quite a bit. I've been teaching at Notre Dame for 20 years, uh, and that is my first job. I'm still here, and uh, but over those 20 years, I have experienced the large institution of Notre Dame in a variety of ways, uh, and I've gotten new perspectives on the institution over time, uh, depending on what roles and uh, uh, leadership responsibilities I've had. Uh, and, um, and, and that's kind of fun. It's, a fu it's, 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 it's interesting to see, begin to see yourself as part of this bigger institution, um, you know, and, and to see it as a kind of organic life form of sorts right. that is growing and developing just as you are. And over time, if you spend enough time in an institution organization, you, you do see ways in which you make an impact. Um, right. And, um, and it, it, it's, it's mainly on people that you make an impact, um, students in my case, but, but you also eventually over time make, make impact on institutions. Um, so not, so not, not just the people who operate the institution, but the institution itself. And that, that's rewarding as well. Although I think the ultimate reward is to know that you have shaped or um, helped people um, in um, developing themselves and their potential. And that's why teaching is such a wonderfully rewarding career. Um, and uh, it goes uh, back to the fi fire girl mentality. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, yeah. I definitely I, I think I put out some metaphorical fires for yeah. over time. Uh, and um, I, 
yeah, I definitely still have that, um, that desire to be there when students need me um, and um, to help them through any crisis they might have. Um, and that is, uh, I think another dimension of leadership. I think it's also a part of leadership you have to watch out for. I certainly know in my yeah. case that sometimes I've, I've um, maybe been too um, super erogatory to use yeah. the term too, too willing to um, serve others. A that sa savior complex. Yeah, I've, exactly. I've definitely sacrifice. dealt with that too. Yeah, yeah. Sacrifice for the whole, yeah. um, but not think so much about the um, impact on myself um, or my, uh, my personal life. So I think that there's a way in which all leaders have to learn that hard lesson. But yes, it's important for us all to be the, be, be, to put out the fires when, 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 when they're there. Um, but we maybe don't need to seek out the fires. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I've definitely <laughs> have been guilty of that in the past. It, it's easy. It's, I know it's an extreme example, but it's, it's easy to, you know, when you're really passionate about something, you want to like martyr yourself for it kind of and, mm -hmm. and, and sacrifice, you know, a martyr is an extreme example, but to, to want to sacrifice your time, your, your, your personal yeah. life, your freedoms to, and it's not inherently bad, but you have to be careful not to yeah. go too far. There was another point though, that you brought up that I was kind of interested in, wanted to follow up a little bit more on where you talked about kind of like when you're in a bigger organization, you're able to reinvent yourself a little bit more than when you're in a small organization. How have you done that maybe at your own time at Notre Dame? I know that you took on the position of, um, like the head of the Hesper Gisco program. Uh, and that's, the, but that's the only one I'm really aware of. Like what, was that an example of you kind yeah, of trying that to reinvent big, yourself? Yeah, that was a big change for me. Yeah, I mean, to, to be in charge of that program was a big change. I mean, uh, I had a, all of a sudden had an administrative role in addition to being a professor. So it was a big adjustment. It probably took me about a year to really um, come to grips with that. I, I, I think I thought, oh, this will be easy, you know, sure, I can, you know, um, do both at once um, and be a mom. But but I, I think, you know, it took me about a year before I really, you know, got the swing of things. Um, and everyone tells you that before you start a new job. Um, I'm sure you've heard it as you begin to move into your career. But, um, you know, I think that as an individual, I found it hard to believe. I, I think I also tend to have a superwoman complex and I tend to think, oh, I can do everything at once and right. I'm the ultimate multi multitasker. And um, that's also a bit of the former athlete mentality. <laughs> yeah. Physically do anything. So of course I can professionally do anything, right? Right. Uh, and I think that uh, that's another kind of thing to watch out for is, yeah. is, is that tendency of, especially, high achieving people to um, just think they can do everything without any cost to them. And that's, yeah. there's always a cost. And um, that's where the business world actually provides a very important model, utilitarian model of cost benefit analysis. Yeah. And that's, that's a very important um, rational model for thinking through um, uh, your leadership strategies and whether they are in fact beneficial um, is to, to always 
look at the costs and the benefits, um, especially when it comes to big decisions. Um, mm -hmm. You can't do that for everything, um, yeah. you know, um, but um, when it comes to big decisions, I think it is important to think about costs and benefits. Um, so, um, so for me, that was a great time. I uh, met some of the best students I've ever had. Uh, and I'm so proud of you guys now that you're seniors. Yeah. Um, I see all of going your the world. accomplishments. <laughs> You know, Augustine's going off to China next year. Wow. Um, and as a Yanqing scholar, um, I have another student, um, Sarah Ronnie Reddy, going on a Fulbright to Luxembourg. Oh, uh, I didn't know Sarah's going to Luxembourg. Yeah, I got yeah, to reconnect with her. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm excited to visit you guys. And uh, so, um, yeah, but, you know, that's just two of, of just dozens of just unbelievably talented students I met when I was director of um, Hesburgh USCO and the other merit scholarship programs at Notre Dame. And, uh, and so um, that was a huge benefit um, and, and one that I will always cherish um, and can't be quantified. Um, but that said, I did realize, especially being a mother of a young child, that yeah. it was a bit much for me to handle in some sense, three jobs at once. Um, if I include my yeah. motherhood. As a, uh, so I, yeah, so I ended up taking a leave of absence to uh, finish a book, um, which I'm very proud of, called Artificial Life After Frankenstein. And in fact, you, Augustine, inspired a lot of it because we had many great conversations about yeah. science fiction um, and especially um, uh, cyberpunk science fiction. Yes, uh, and with <laughs> big cyberpunk thing. <laughs> my writing on artificial intelligence heavily in this book and the ethics of artificial intelligence in particular. Uh, and so... Uh, so I, I took that year to finish my book and, um, uh, and then, um, the pandemic happened. Uh, and so, uh, so that's another example where a lot of times you're making decisions in your career, um, and, uh, in, in about your leadership roles and the world can throw you a curveball. You don't really foresee that you know, you know that that a kind of cataclysmic environmental disaster may be in your path, and and then you have to be nimble on your feet and figure out how you're going to adjust your career um, in response. And um, and so um, for me, it meant that last year was a big writing year um, uh, and a, a big public advocacy year with regard to the ethics of public health in particular. Um, and, um, but it also, the cost of last year was that because virtually everything was online, um, you know, I really didn't get to experience your guys' senior year. And, yeah. and that, that, that is a cost for me. I mean, I, I do, I do wish that I was able to be there for some of my favorite students of all time in a more personal way. But on the other hand, I know that, um, when you have genuine, um, relationships with people in academia and in the workplace, they last forever. And so that's how I feel about the students I met in um, my ethical leadership classes is that um, I know that those are um, lifelong bonds in that, you know, no matter what, um, you guys are part of my team. Oh, thank you so much. I feel the exact same way. And I feel like that's a that's a great point to kind of wrap up. That was a very touching moment. And uh, so I want to give you the opportunity if you have anything you'd like to plug any books that you're coming out with. I know you're always working on something. I don't know if it's hush hush. <laughs> <laughs> or if you can, you yeah. can share. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, sure. Well, I, I just published Artificial Life After Frankenstein with University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, and uh, that is a study of Mary Shelley's two great science fiction novels, Frankenstein and The Last Man, um, as works of political science fiction concerned with um, this question about what are the obligations of humanity to the creatures or creations that we make. Yeah. And um, so that's um, my latest solo author book. I also have a two volume set coming out from Bloomsbury on portraits of Mary Wollstonecraft. That's coming out in May. Oh. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that took me about 25 years to research. Ooh. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I involved many of my students uh, in, in, in helping me with producing those volumes. Um, and then the next book after that is going to be a study of Mary Shelley's relevance for pandemics. Uh, and I'm going to look at her great post-apocalyptic pandemic novel, The Last Man, as a kind of yeah. ethical model for navigating the world of pandemics in the present and the future. Very topical. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a lovely day. You've been listening to the Inspiring Brave Leaders podcast by Magnolia Tree. This is Daliana Eliesch, the editor of the podcast. Feel free to reach us or visit our website for more bursts of inspiration around leadership. You can find a link for our website and our social media platforms in our bio. Thank you for tuning in. Mm -hmm.